Welcome to Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national stories focusing on news, politics, and current events. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Hello, my name is Link Smith, and I am hosting another edition of the National Press Club NPC One Update podcast. And today we are joined by Dr. Henry Now, professor of political science at the Elliott School of International Affairs, George Washington University. Welcome, Dr. Now. Thank you. It's good to be here. Your career has spanned some five decades uh, to include professorships at Williams College, George Washington University, visiting professorships at Johns Hopkins, Stanford, and Columbia Universities, along with serving as Special Assistant to the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs in the United States Department of State, later serving on the National Security Council. In 2015, you indeed published the book Perspectives on International Relations. And in the book, you discussed historical patterns, the contemporary international system, along with globalization and change. Robert Cohane of Princeton University says the book, quote, provides a lucid, multidimensional introduction to the intriguing ambiguities of world politics, end quote. When you conceived and wrote the book, what was your overall vision and purpose? Well, that was an effort to get across to students that it matters how you think about this subject matter in terms of where you finally end up in examining the details of this subject matter. So I was very interested in trying to lay out for students the simple sort of explanation of the ways, the way, the principal ways we think about international affairs in uh, international politics and political science. And, and, and they're very straightforward. I mean, the first is, of course, we think about the world in terms of power struggle. Uh, both at uh, the decision-making level, at the international level, we see a lot of groups competing for resources and power. That's one way in which we think about the world. And that focuses us on various things, like the arms race, like weapons, like military strategy, etc. But that's not the only aspect of the world that is out there. Uh, we also think about the world in terms of interrelationships. Um, how do we relate to other people? Uh, what kinds of communities exist? And most importantly, what kinds of institutions exist, all right, that in which we participate and through which we get our information and our understanding of the world around us. That's another way in which that's the liberal perspective on international affairs. We think about the world largely in terms of how we interact with each other. And that's done, if that's done on a repetitive basis, it's usually done then in institutions. Uh, and they influence what we look at and the details that we're concerned with. And then finally, we think about the world in terms of ideological struggles or ideological conflicts or maybe competition. That is where various religious groups, various political groups, various ethnic groups, tribal groups are competing over who they are and how they define themselves and what the purposes of their society uh, ought to be. 
And there we can think about a lot of the great struggles in history between authoritarian governments and democratic governments, between the Christian religion and the Islam religion and all kinds of other struggles that have gone on in the world defined largely in terms of ideologies. So that's a third way in which we I call that the identity perspective in which we think about the world. Again, that's going to focus us on some different facts than if I were thinking about the world primarily in terms of a power struggle. In your book, Conservative Internationalism, Armed Diplomacy Under Jefferson, Polk, Truman, and Reagan, it's a different book, you indicate that debates around American foreign policy have largely focused on three primary traditions. One, nationalism. Secondly, internationalism. And thirdly, realism. This said, you posit that there is another tradition known as conservative internationalism. Can you briefly compare and contrast each of these four traditions? Yes. I mean, uh, nationalism and realism uh, come straight out of the theory of realism, um, the one that focuses on power struggles. Uh, Nationalism is a sense that uh, we need to protect ourselves, defend ourselves as a nation, as a country. All nations do that. Um, We should be not concerned about other people's security. We should be concerned about our security. Um, We should not try to spread our way of life because other countries have different ways of life and we want them to flourish just as we flourish. So the nationalist is a very um, limited kind of way of thinking about the world in real terms. Now, it heavily emphasizes the military, defense, borders, uh, immediate environment around your borders, immediate sea lanes. So there's a focus on protecting yourself in that circumstance. Realism is an approach to international politics that becomes a little bit more broader. It's interested in trying to balance and manage power globally. That is, it doesn't expect necessarily other countries always to successfully defend themselves. You may have to help them defend themselves. And so it gets into the whole area of alliances, how countries come together to protect themselves in certain ways, and how, as Henry Kissinger would say, a well-known realist, uh, how countries manage world order or how they manage their separate existence now, their separate nation states, just as in the case of nationalism. But now they, the great powers in particular feel a responsibility for somehow or other taking charge of the system as a whole. So those are the two kind of uh, traditions that really are most evident in much of the debate about American foreign policy today. From your perspective, what foreign policy traditions have more recent administrations followed to include that of Presidents Clinton, Bush, Obama, and now President Trump? Well, you know, it's interesting because this is how you can use these concepts and how we do use these concepts to sort of understand contemporary uh, statesmen. Uh, Bill Clinton was uh, thought of an, an early on primarily as a liberal internationalist because you recall he came into office in 1993 when the UN was riding very, very high. The UN had had just major success, obviously, in terms of the end of the Cold War. Uh, The world was moving now towards a more peaceful and united world. The United Nations kind of represented that. He advocated an assertive multilateralism. Uh, His uh, um, Secretary of State uh, made a, a big deal of that concept. Now, it turns out that eventually he was not able to work as cooperatively as he had hoped with, for example, Russia. And divisions began to emerge between the West and Russia on many of the conflicts going on in the Balkan countries. And later in his 
presidency, he moved towards a more realist orientation. He moved away from the UN as kind of the means by which we were going to secure the peace in the Balkans. He moved to NATO. And he, he hosted the Dayton Accords in the middle part of that decade. He then led the expansion of NATO in 1997. And uh, at the end, you could say he had, was a liberal internationalist who had been a little bit mugged by reality and moved more towards the realist end of the spectrum. Now, the, the realist being the big guy in the block wins? Means, yes. And you use alliance power, you use military power in order to balance power and preserve peace. That would be Dr. And Kissinger. That would be Dr. Kissinger, correct. And right. that's what he did. We did it, by the way. In Kosovo, we, we did a good job of resolving that conflict or at least putting that conflict on ice, you could say. It still exists today. Uh, Kosovo is still not recognized, of course, by Russia and a few other countries, but it's recognized by most countries. Um, and, and that was done through an injection of force. Now, uh, George W. Bush is s- argued to have kind of taken that to an extreme. That is, that he decided that somehow or other our mission was to sort of spread democracy, especially in the Middle East. Let freedom ring. And we would do that, yes, we would do that um, at the point of a gun. Now, that was a bit of a caricature, obviously, of George W. Bush. But after we were attacked in 9-11, we did become much more vigorous and aggressive militarily. And so we went after those who came after us. Maybe it's true that George W. Bush expanded the conflict too far. Maybe he should have focused just on Afghanistan, where the hijackers had come from who attacked us on 9-11. Uh, he expanded it to include Iraq. We got bogged down into a long war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and so people uh, accused him of being too aggressive, too Wilsonian in terms of trying to spread democracy too quickly. Obama came into office, and by the way, now also Trump sent uh, Obama, and both of them are really more now pulling back towards the realist and the nationalist side. Uh, Obama liked to think of himself as both. He was liberal internationalist when it didn't cost anything in terms of military action, because he was very much opposed to military action, but he was a realist from time to time when, for example, he used force uh, in various places like uh, in Libya uh, to uh, deal with humanitarian crises. Um, Donald Trump has taken that even further towards the nationalist end of the spectrum. America first. Yeah, America first. Yeah. Over to a whole other subject, uh, if we can, Dr. Now. How would you characterize the overall media coverage of American foreign policy over the past 50 years? Well, you know, it's interesting. Of course, our media has become a lot more competitive and um, uh, a lot more divisive. Um, So we are getting um, a lot of different views and perspectives on world events. Now, personally, I, I think that's good. We should have a competitive media. We've always had a competitive media. And maybe a competitive media that to some extent is differentiated in political terms. You know, if you go back to the 1790s, the very first decade of this country, you'll find that both Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, who led one party that emerged during that period, and Thomas Jefferson, who led the other party, Hamilton led the Federalists, Jefferson led the Republicans, they both had their own newspapers. Lest we forget. They had their own newspapers. And historically, that's always been the case. So it is actually pretty important to have partisan newspapers because they will bring to your attention what the other 
party will not tell you. If we think about now that we went through a halcyon period, I think, maybe when television first arrived, when we thought there was only one way, there was the Walter Cron- Cronkite way of thinking about the world. In other words, whatever Walter Cronkite told us on the nightly news was the news was the news. This would have been coming into the 1950s. It would have been the 50s, 50s and early 60s, yeah. yeah. And for a while, I think we lived with that illusion that, well, maybe there's just one reality and one interpretation of that reality. But in fact, there are more than one interpretation. And now we're seeing that. I think we should not uh, disparage that. I don't think we should condemn it. I don't think, I think we should encourage it actually, uh, and just insist that the media then be as factual as possible about their point of view. Uh, Challenge them to support that point of view always with uh, the facts. But not to say that one side has the facts and the other side doesn't. That seems to me to be not very constructive to a dialogue and to a conversation about our issues. Because if one side doesn't have the facts, you don't have to listen to them, right? And therefore, the conversation is over. Can you provide your views on the quality and depth of recent foreign policy trade press writings on American foreign policy? Well... You know, I'm uh, an avid reader of all of the major newspapers, for example. I am struck by the extent to which the New York Times and the Washington Post are very similar in the events that they cover, and often their coverage of it is very similar. Um, the Wall Street Journal doesn't differ that much in terms of the, of the, of the events that are reported. About the same. About the same. Now, there is a difference in opinion, the opinion page between the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the, and, and, and the Washington Post. Um, I think what has happened is there was a gap that was left there. That is that the liberal mainstream liberal media left a gap, which now has been exploited to some extent by Fox and by other One America News, other programs that have now come that are going to focus on some other things. And for I'll give you one very good example. Uh, I mean, people who are of a conservative persuasion in this country have been very concerned over the last 10 years with a series of crises, the most important ones being the IRS tax crisis, uh, where the IRS clearly went after conservative uh, organizations to try to hamper their ability to register under the law, under a Supreme Court decision, which said it was legal for them to do so. And they were delayed, by the way, from forming in time for the 2012 election. This was a direct use of government power to influence a political election. Now, that was not reported heavily by the liberal media. And it took then a a more conservative media to focus on that. Today, for example, we have the liberal media, for example, focusing on Trump and his Piccadillo's, or maybe worse, his crimes. Uh, but And you have Fox, on the other hand, focusing on the Justice Department and FBI scandals. I think both are needed. Both are necessary. It's good that we have both organizations. But I would sort of caution people who are listening to the news to always ask the question, well, what else, what other news is there? What's the news that I'm not hearing? Um, what are the facts that are not being brought to my attention? And if we have a healthy media, there will be other sources that they can go to, uh, to, to to learn about that. So if somebody today who's worried about the FBI and Justice Department, you know, we almost had we had high level officials in those two major powerful agencies in our government. We had them talking in the summer of 2016 about stopping uh, Donald Trump from becoming president of the United States. This is a horrible thing to happen in a republic. We need to know more about that. 
And so that is important for us to focus on. doesn't mean we don't also focus on uh, Trump himself and some of the things he may have done and may be doing today. And, and, and you want, in all the words, all the facts to come to bear. And then you want to trust the American people and let them decide. And then when they do decide, by the way, you accept it. You don't try to second guess their judgment, which to see to some extent occurred, I think, in the case of the Trump election. Thinking of history, would a reduction of United States involvement in the world today have the same consequences as what happened as we well know, in the 1920s and 1930s? Yeah. I don't think so. In other words, there are those who think that that will happen. Uh, a colleague I know of mine who's written a book called uh, The Jungle Grows Back, and he's afraid that if we pull back, the jungle's going to grow and um, consume all of the all the gains that we've made all right, over the past 75 years. I don't, because I think we've changed the world significantly. I mean, most of the world now is democratic. All of Europe is democratic. We have democratic allies in Asia where we never had democratic allies before. Uh, so this is a much better world from which we are marginally coming back, sort of retreating, coming home, and asking others to do more. That's the key theme of one of the key themes of the Trump administration, to ask the Europeans to do more, to ask the Japanese, the South Koreans to do more. So we are, we may be in the process of pulling back. We're pulling back from a much better world. And I think, therefore, the possibility of a 20s and 30s sort of rise of nationalism and, and once again a, a kind of repeat of, I think that's a very, very long stretch from where we are. Um, and Even with China. Even with China. Even, even with Russia. China. And, well, even, less, I mean, China is the country that I would watch in particular because they are growing by leaps and bounds and they have unlimited resources, at least in terms of human resources. Um, and if they should ever get their act together, they could be a formidable foe. And it looks as though they are determined to be an ideological foe. They're not interested in opening up, becoming more, uh, you know, more democratic having a more open society. So if they do become a very large, powerful, ideological foe of the United States, we could very easily be in another almost kind of Cold War setting, the way we were earlier with the Soviet Union. Now, Russia is a somewhat weaker power. Uh, they are a problem in Europe, and especially on the border with uh, the alliance, with the NATO alliance. But NATO is powerful. It's strong. It's strong today. We have troops on the border of Russia protecting the Baltic states. Uh, we're arming Ukraine to try to protect itself against any further aggression by uh, the Russians. So I think we can manage the Russian. And Russia is not growing the way that China is. It's not becoming a great power. It's limited very much by its uh, domestic policies. It hasn't made the commitment to become a modern country the way China has. Uh, so we can manage Russia, uh, although we need to focus on that part of the world where Russia's influence is still pretty significant, and that's the Eastern European area. In closing, any predictions on what American foreign policy tradition our nation will favor both in the near term and the intermediate future? Well, I think we are in a phase, as I suggested earlier, both Obama and Trump have brought us back from the very aggressive globalism that we pursued in the 1990s and the early 2000s. You have to remember, we not only expanded NATO in the 1990s, we also expanded the trading system. We created the World Trading Organization, and we invited China to come into that trading system. That caused, that was an era of globalization. It caused some real blowback in our own society, particularly the China trade, so that eventually 
the majority of our people, at least in elections and from 2008 on, have been saying they don't want us to be quite as aggressive, quite as outward going as we were in the 90s and the early 2000s. I think that mood is going to persist until, and I'm not uh, hoping for this, obviously, uh, and I hope it never happens, but until the world smacks us again in some way, that is, until we get involved in some conflict somewhere. Another 9-11. Another line 9-11, possibly. And then we kind of, uh, kind of you know, realize that we can't escape the world and that as long as we're going to be in the world, we might as well play a big part, uh, a big role in that world. But even then, it seems to me in the next 50 years, we have very strong partners in the world, in Europe and in Asia. They can do more. And President Trump, I think, is right on target when he says to them repeatedly whenever he goes to Europe or whenever they come here, you have to do more because the American people have paid a high price all right, to lead the world. It's been good for us. I don't want to say it hasn't been good for America. It has been. But we have paid a pretty high price in terms of uh, casualties in these wars, in terms of jobs that people have had to lose and find new jobs because of trade. We have probably paid more than any other country. Think of any other country that's had to move their labor force around the way we have in order to facilitate uh, open trade. I don't think Japan has done that. I don't think Germany has done that. So the American people have paid a heavy price. In the future, they can't pay that larger price. And that means we're going, the allies are going to have to step up or maybe over time, that is over 50 years, maybe the jungle will grow back. But it doesn't need to because those countries that we want to step up are – democracies. They are open, free societies that share our basic values. Dr. Henry Now, Professor of Political Science, Elliott School of International Affairs, George Washington University. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. Thank you for coming. You have been listening to Update One, a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Committee. You can comment on this show or any episode of Update One by going to facebook.com slash pressclubdc or on Twitter at pressclubdc. Thanks for listening to Update One.